Hello, I'm Rochelle and tonight's Bible reading comes from Mark chapter 3 verses 13 to 35. Um, it's titled, Jesus Appoints the Twelve. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority and to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bo... I should have practiced that. Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house and again... A crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the gospel of Christ. Good evening, everyone. Katie and Dan are up for a week. They're going up to Noosa. Um, and so this afternoon, I'm trying to put the finishing touches to this message, and my little granddaughter, Marnie, is wanting to play with me all afternoon. So I'm not sure what order I'm going to speak in tonight, but we'll see what comes out. <coughs> uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for... Um, the opportunity we have to learn it and to learn from it and to be shaped by it. We ask again for your assistance, for your help to grant us correct understanding and correct application, the correct implication of what your will is for us as we seek to follow Jesus. Speak to us, Lord, we pray in his name. Amen. In this passage of Mark, and tonight we're doing Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 4, so we'll focus primarily on 3 and give a rough outline of four, I think. We'll see how we go for time. 
In Mark chapter 3, there are various groups of people who Mark has put together in a sequence who had different attitudes to the Lord Jesus. And so we're going to look at those. I've got four groups that I've found in this passage. But I want us to begin the paragraph before where Rochelle started reading to, and this would have been what I think Charlie, Pastor Charlie would have done a couple of weeks ago. He would have finished with his paragraph. This is about Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. This is verse 7 of Mark 3. And a large crowd from all over the place, from Galilee, from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and from the regions beyond the Jordan, and even around Tyre and Sidon, north, south, east, and west. People are coming in hundreds and thousands, and they're walking hundreds of miles to come and see him. Verse 9, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. Um, For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to try and touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him. They cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. That's the background to these sorts of groups coming together. And if you like, that paragraph forms the first group, uh, the crowd. And the crowd is made up of a mixture of different people who came seeking not what he was saying and teaching and revealing about God, but what he was doing. Miracles. They came because they had physical needs. Some of them had spiritual needs. They're the two parts of this group, I guess. There are those who came for physical healing and there are those who came who were demonized and Jesus delivered them. The people who came for the physical healing weren't waiting for him to touch them. They were surging forward and pressuring him and pushing him and he's being pushed back to the water and he strategically does a very sensible thing. I mean, he's the son of God. He's could have divided the crowd and walked between them. He could have walked on water, but he doesn't do that. He just says, get a boat ready. And he stands on the boat so that he's both distant from the crowd, but also it's a natural amphitheater that he can teach them. And that's what he does. Uh, And in the process, I guess we can draw the conclusion that some of the crowd that were coming to Jesus had a higher priority on the physical than they did on the spiritual. There are some people just like that today. The very first temptation the Lord Jesus had was exactly that. Satan tried tempting him in the area of the physical. He was hungry. He'd been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And Satan said, you must be hungry. You know, turn the stones into bread. And Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone. We're not just physical creatures. Our higher priority is our spiritual need. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Our greatest need is not physical. Our greatest need is spiritual it's forgiveness while it's true half true you know you should never preach the gospel to a starving man you should feed him first and then share the gospel with him there's an element of truth in that you've got to take people's physical needs into account we are physical beings we're not don't deny them Uh, which means as an aside sometimes the best things if you're a follower of the lord jesus and if you're struggling spiritually sometimes there's no spiritual cause for it it's a physical cause Uh, you could be unwell you could be overtired sometimes the best thing you can do for your relationship and connection with Jesus is go have a sleep get an amen to that (laughs) Um, or you need to eat something because we do need to look after our bodies we are body dwelling people but our body is not the most important part of us um I hesitate to say it this way, but our spirit obviously is to be the priority, the top notch. 
We are to look after our whole beings, body, mind, emotions, relationships, everything. So here in the crowd are these people with diseases and they're quite desperate and pressing forward. Then there were these other group of this first group, which I'm going to call the fans, and you'll find out why in a moment, uh, who were demonised. Jesus came declaring the kingdom of God. And in the process of doing that, he came into another kingdom where he was declaring it. He was invading the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world. So, yes, there is a personal devil who is real. There are fallen angels or evil spirits, demons that are are around. And I hope you never have to encounter them in any direct form. But they do pursue. The Bible talks about uh, Satan walking around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I uh, spoke to a lady in her first service this morning, and uh, second service this morning, and she uh, saying uh, terrific things are happening in her family. She's come to faith, and, um, and the kids have noticed it, a change in her, and they're supportive of it, but they're distant from her uh, in terms of they don't want the religious thing. It's good for you, Mum, but not for us. And she's noticed that uh, while things are going wrong in the family, but good things are still happening, and God is at work, and she's noticed that she's under spiritual attack. And I said to her, yep, that's par for the course. Whenever you're available and doing anything for God, then the evil one is going to retaliate. It is a battle. And sure enough, that's what Jesus experiences here. He's doing exactly what God wants him to do. And the evil one has infiltrated the crowd, if you like, with his own demonized people. People who have demons somehow attached to them or inside them, who use their body, their mind, their mouth to achieve their will. Jesus never, ever received their free publication of what they would do, free advertising. You know, you're the son of God. Well, that's true. But it's the enemy who's advertising it, so Jesus doesn't want to accept it. He always rebuked them. He always commanded them to be quiet. He always commanded them, come out of him. Leave that person alone. Do them no harm. So if ever you encounter somebody, I hope you don't, but if you do, you encounter somebody who is demonized, then all you need to do as a follower of the Lord Jesus is all you need to do is to command that demon to come out of the person, to do them no harm, to go to the place where Jesus would send them. That's all you've got to do. You don't have to rant and rave. You don't have to jump up and down. You don't have to yell. There's a natural tendency to do that. Well, that's my experience because the adrenaline does flow and you do become a little bit fearful and, and you don't need to be. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, you have authority in his name to do exactly that, as we'll come to in this passage. If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus, don't do it. Stay right away from it. You ought not to dabble in the spiritual realm until you have the covering and you know Jesus personally. He will protect you. Outside of him, you're in great spiritual danger. Um, Remember the story of the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts, chapter 19, I think. There was uh, the Jewish people who weren't followers of Jesus went into the house to cast the demon out. And the demon said to the Jewish people, not followers of Jesus, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, who are you? You don't have any authority over me. That's what they mean. So if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, you have authority just like Jesus over the demons because the Lord Jesus gave it to us. So that's the first group. There is a crowd, which I've called the fans. Then there is a second group, which is the beginning of our reading tonight, which is where Jesus, in the process of invading this kingdom of Satan and setting up his own new kingdom, is going to found a new nation. He goes up on a mountainside in verse 13. 
he calls to him some of his disciples that he wanted and they came and he appointed 12. Why did he appoint 12? Well, he tells us in verse 14 and 15, he appointed 12 that they might be with him, number one, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons, number two. To be with him, communion, and to be commissioned, to be sent out by him, to share the gospel, to preach the gospel, but also to exercise authority over demons. To be with him and to be sent out from him. That's the balance of the Christian life. Uh, that's part of our vision statement that when we release it, it's this balance between worship with Jesus comes before work serving Jesus. It's very important for us to have a very close, intimate relationship with him. And they are probably two of the mistakes we get out of balance. Some people, what they do is they focus so much upon being with Jesus that they become completely isolated from the world. And they are focused in here of learning as much as they can about Jesus, which is commendable, but it's out of balance. Because you are to be with Jesus and learn from him and learn about him, and then you are to go out and share with others. And it's that balance. Some people ignore their private devotions and they're just more into the practicality. They think they can do it on their own. That's also equally out of balance and unhealthy. The balance is both with Jesus and sent out by him, open to the opportunities of sharing the gospel, which he will illustrate several times uh, in this passage tonight. Uh, Nani. Why did he choose them to be with him and so on? Um, so I guess before I go on to the next bit of this, uh, how's that for you? Think about that. Are you got a plan? You need a plan. You can't just do it spontaneously. You need the discipline. You need a routine. You need need commitment to I'm going to spend time with Jesus I'm going to read his word I'm going to listen to him I'm going to talk to him in prayer I'm going to record what he says to me so I can do it I'm going to come to him and learn from him sit at his feet like Mary and then when I get up from my time alone with him I'm going to go out into the world and be open to the opportunities and possibilities that he is going to be presenting for me where he has placed me what happens if you just do this and you don't do that what happens if you just come to church on Sunday, you hear teaching, you share with Christians, you go and have lunch with Christians, you come to church at night, you go to, with Christians to coffee afterwards, and then you go home. You go to your life group, your connect group, spend time in your, reading your devotions each day of the week, and then next Sunday you come back and it's repeat, do over, do over, do over. What happens for you spiritually if you do that? I'll tell you, you get indigestion. You'll get fat. You'll get flabby, spiritually, not physically, I am talking about. Because the balance is what you learn, you are to share. And I think I've shared this with you before, but I learned very early on in my Christian walk with Jesus. What I learned, if I shared that with somebody, I retained it a whole lot more better. <laughs> what I learned and shared, I retained. And then more is given to me. What I also learned was, if I learned something and I didn't bother sharing it with anybody else, I didn't retain this. 
This will come out in chapter 4. It's exactly what the Lord Jesus says. And I discovered that in my own uh, journey, my own personal walk with the Lord Jesus. That's how he was working in, in my life. So why did Jesus choose these 12? Well, to be with him and to send them out. But why 12? Because once upon a time, there was a bloke by the name of Jacob and he had how many sons? 12 sons. Those 12 sons became 12 families. Those 12 families became 12 tribes, became the nation of Israel. Why did Jesus choose 12? He's forming a new nation, a spiritual nation. The nation of Israel had failed. Jesus came invading the world, declaring the kingdom of God and was establishing a new spiritual nation. And you can be confident of that being true because in Acts chapter 1, when what was the name of the bloke who betrayed Jesus? What was his name? They, in Acts chapter 1, had to replace him. There had to be 12. It was symbolic. It was meaningful. And from them, that seed of 12, millions now believe. Why these 12? They're certainly a mixed bag. They have various temperaments. There's Peter. There's John. There's Thomas. It's not because they were religious in nature or anything like that. They had certainly different political views. There is a Matthew, what was his job? Tax collector. There was another bloke called Simon the Zealot. What's that? What's a zealot? He's a terrorist. He's a person who was patriotic to the Jews and he can't stand tax collectors because they have betrayed the Jewish people. And Jesus speaks, I'll have the tax collector and I'll have the terrorist and we'll get them together. What a mixed group of people. Different backgrounds, some most from the north, but one at least from the south in Judas. Occupations varied. There were tradies as well as academics. Many of them were, quote unquote, in Acts chapter 4, called unlearned, uneducated, not theologically trained. Um, so blood relatives, brothers. Uh, there was James and John as... Rochelle read to us and Jesus gave them a nickname. Jesus apparently loved giving nicknames. He changed Simon's name to Peter and he changes James and John. He called them, how do you say that word? Boanerges. That's how you say that word. Maybe. <laughs> what does that mean? Sons of thunder. What does that mean? Sorry? <laughs> no, it doesn't mean nothing. It means they were loud like thunder or they had tempers, they were explosive. Which is amazing when you think about it, if that's what it means, that they were short-fused. And there is another gospel story where that fits, you know. They're the ones who said, you want to, let's call fire down from heaven and blitz them. Um, uh, and this is John. This is the apostle of love, transformed by knowing Jesus and by beating it to it over the years. Isn't that remarkable? So these 12 guys are a motley crew. They're ordinary people. They're available. And they're certainly teachable. Jesus chose them. He called them. He said, come and follow me. Spend time with me. Learn from me. And then I'm going to send you out ahead of time. What Jesus is doing is preparing and training others to pass on, to carry on the mission. He knows his time is short. And he has a job to do, to train and equip. Just before I move on, let me share this with you, just, it's just an aside. If you look at the times, the, each time in the Gospels, three Gospels in the book of Acts, where there are, the apostles are listed, they're always listed in the same groupings. 
just as an interesting aside, you can check it out yourself and then that'll help guide you in how this thing, there was 12 people, but there was a structure to it. Each of the 12, there were in three groups of four, and each time, I think it's Simon is always mentioned first, and he's always the leader of the first group, and then Philip is mentioned as the leader of the second group, and then James, the son of Alphaeus, is the leader of the third group. And then within those groups, often the names will be in exactly the same order, but in these ones, sometimes it moves around a little bit, but it's always those four in that group. It never swaps groups. And remember, Jesus sent the, the apostles out two by two. Two of them, two of them. Two of them, two of them, two of them, two of them. And sent them out and they would come back. And it's almost like these are their accountability group or this is their small connect group or it's something like that going on. And it's out of that group, out of the first group, that Jesus takes Peter, James and John. They hear and pull them into even more closer, intimate connections with him. Anyway, nonetheless, I thought that was interesting. So who have we had? First group is the crowd, which I call the fans. The second group are these 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, who, which I am going to call the followers. See what I'm doing? Fans, followers. Next one is going to be, if we need to jump over a verse, because it's a bit like Mark has written this, he sandwiched this sort of bit of the story into bits. It's strange. It says, verse 20, uh, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family, that's the fourth one, heard about this, they went to take charge of him. Why? Because they said, he's lost it. He's beside himself, quite literally, is what they said. NIV translates that as, he's out of his mind. And then verse 31, they, they're on their way in that verse, verse 21. When they get to verse 31, it's then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. So it's like they set out and then they arrive. And in between that is what I've called the second group. So um, verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him, began to speak to them in parables. Second, third group is going to be his foes, <clears throat> those who opposed him, his enemies. This group had arrived, as Mark says, from Jerusalem, and they made a reasonable, a logical conclusion, but they were wrong. They didn't say this to Jesus' face. They're on the edge of the crowd, and they're saying it to one another. Uh, he's got a problem and his problem is that he is tapping into spiritual power true but they concluded he's tapping into evil power he's dabbling in the occult the black arts he casts out demons because he is friends with the prince of demons with Beelzebul Satan himself that's the only reason he has power over him so it's a logical thing reason thing but it's wrong if you have power over demons, it's either because you know the boss demon or you know God. Well, they ruled that out. Well, it can't be God, so it must be this. And they started spreading this rumour, and Jesus heard them. And so he calls them to him from the crowd. Come here, I'd like to talk to you. And in the process of calling them, he challenges them, which is typical of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't rebuke them to tell them off. He corrects and challenges them in order for them to come to know truth. That's always what he was trying to do. 
even though sometimes it would appear indirectly to us, nonetheless, that was his mission, to seek and to save those who were lost. But if you were resistant to him, he did not force you. He came to heal the sick, not those who thought they were well. And so Jesus calls them over to him, and he says to them two things. First, what you're suggesting is unreasonable, it's illogical. If Satan's kingdom is divided against itself, it's not going to stand, it'll collapse. It's a civil war. Satan kicking out his own demons out of people where he's possessing them, it's like, that's dumb. And so he's trying to help them realise that. And then he says to them, plus you are in very serious spiritual danger. This is a bit difficult, so I better take a few minutes on this one. Um, Jesus says to them, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all of their sins and every slander they utter. Isn't that wonderful truth? Every sin can be forgiven. But, Jesus says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. And the reason Jesus says that to them is because they were saying... He has an evil spirit. Jesus is pointing out to them the spiritual danger that they are placing themselves in. This third group, the foes, what does that mean? What is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Can we commit it today? Well, there are several answers to this. I'm going to give you my best shot. Um, Firstly, Somebody and people have to and have taught for several hundred years that this was a sin that could be committed only in the first century, it could only be committed when Jesus was here in the flesh, and therefore it cannot be committed today. It's when you quite literally attribute the work of miracles of Jesus to Satan, which is what these people were doing. So it was a thing you could only commit back then, so we can't commit it today. That's been a view, as I said, for hundreds of years. Um, I don't think it's an overly popular view. I think it's rather, it's something that's very difficult for us to explain, but it appears to me that what Jesus is saying to them is still applicable today. That if a person like those foes opposing Jesus have the same attitude and draw the same conclusion, if they attribute the work of God to the evil one, if they call black white, if they call evil good, If they call wrong, right. If they call vices, that's okay. If they call virtues, oh, that's not okay. If they're getting a hardened, developed attitude, which is the opposite of what the Holy Spirit will be doing in them, which is to convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And if a person is entrenching their view, which is to dismiss what the Spirit of God is doing in them and drawing the exact opposite conclusion, they are in danger of placing themselves in a position where they can't be forgiven. They become unrepentable. That's something we have to be careful of. I'm not sure it's just a one-off statement, a mistake that could be made. I don't think it's that. I think it's more the development of this attitude, of this resistance to the Holy Spirit because he is the only one who can convict us of wrong and if we're resisting and refusing that then we'll remain unforgiven by our own choices and so on there that's my best shot at it and uh, if you would like to come and talk about that then catch me after the service because I'll be running <laughs>
let me also uh, share this conclusion. If what I'm saying is correct, then if a person fears that they have committed the unforgivable sin, and you may know people who have had that fear, I've certainly had people come and talk to me about it, and what you can say to them very confidently, if you are fearful, if you're worried that you have committed the unforgivable sin, you haven't. Because the only reason you would be worried about it or concerned about it is because the Spirit of God is convicting you about it. So therefore, the Holy Spirit is convicting you about it. You haven't committed it. Does it make sense? Okay. If that doesn't make sense, ask the person next to you to explain it. Fourth group. What was the first group? The crowd. Fans. And the second group? The disciples or followers. Third group? the foes and the fourth group is let's go to the family <clears throat> the family come to visit him and they're frightened that he is out of his mind because to them Jesus was an ordinary person this is his family John chapter 7 tells us that his brothers had not yet come to believe in him they knew him as a carpenter he was normal ordinary bloke he repaired chairs and tables and stuff and now they had heard uh, via the crowd and village gossips and, you know, people talking uh, that he's gone round the bend, that he's over himself. And so they came, probably they reasoned for his own good. They came to protect him. They would have perhaps reasoned something like this. He's neglecting his health, no time for meals. He is neglecting his trade, he's not doing any work anymore. He's living off others who are supporting him. There's no security, no likelihood, no livelihood, no superannuation in what he's doing. He's ignoring his station or his position in life. He's not the leader of some national movement. He's a carpenter from a small village, Nazareth. He's disturbing people and he's risking his life. These are some of the things they may have been thinking. He's throwing his career away and he's abandoning himself on some religious trip. And if they were aware of the leaders opposing him and plotting and planning to kill him, then for them it would have been, and this is suicidal. Before we go on to the family, that same attitude is here today. Where... It's okay to be religious. It's okay to follow Jesus if you compartmentalise it. If you do it just on Sundays. And if you're going to do it on Sundays, just do it in the morning or at night. For goodness sake, don't do both. Do one or the other. Otherwise, you'll become a religious maniac. And read your Bible every day? Oh, this is going too far. And now what? I hear you're giving money to the church. Oh, this is seriously something wrong. Ever had experience like that? My dad had that attitude. When I became a Christian, he didn't know what to do. He was beside himself and uh, manifested in, in several different ways, but one of them, he just frustrated, um, frightened that a priest, dad's Catholic, a priest would be in his house and see him drinking beer and smoking cigarettes and carrying on. and he, That threatened him, obviously. And uh, when I was married and had Shane, <laughs> he, I, I asked him what he thought I should call 
our son. He said, Bible. <laughs> he was just a little frustrated. I can remember when I said to him, I'm leaving teaching and I'm going to the ministry. You know what he did? He never did this in my life. He grabbed me by the elbow. We're in the dining room. Grabbed me by the elbow. We used to sit all shaped next to each other. And he lifts me up. He says, come with me. And he walks me into the lounge room. And he sits me down in the lounge room where we have a one-on-one conversation for the only time in my life. And my dad says to me, what are you doing? You're throwing away your career. You're wasting it. To do what? To go and be a minister. My mum's only criteria was, don't you take my grandchildren overseas <laughs> as a missionary. Same attitude of people, family members concerned and getting off track. And maybe, particularly some of you younger folk, you may still experience some of that opposition, some of that misunderstanding from parents. Well, be honourable, be respectful and be loving. Don't be unwise and resistant. Well, then the family arrive and this is, it's strange, we're not told exactly what Mary is thinking but if you think about the Christmas story and the angel visit and the information Mary had well she's part of this group and Jesus's mother and brothers arrived and standing outside they sent someone to call him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said your mother and brothers are outside looking for you and Jesus's answer is not rude but maybe they thought it was he said I have a new family my family is now my, made up of those who hear the will, word of God and do the will of God. Anybody can be in my new family. New nation, new family. Now conditioned not by flesh and blood, not by being a relative to Jesus, but by relationship, by faith and forgiveness, being connected in. And the good part of this story is that Mary and his brothers do come to faith and forgiveness in him. And there's a change in the relationship. Certainly don't conclude from this that when we follow the Lord Jesus, we can be rude and ignore our family. That's not the case. The Bible's very clear in teaching us that we are to be honouring our parents. We are to care for one another in our family. And remember Jesus on the cross, looked after his mum, helped John to assist. And 1 Timothy 5.8 says that if we as followers of the Lord Jesus don't look after our families then we're worse than an unbeliever. So the New Testament is quite clear, the Bible is quite clear that we are to be respectful and helpful in our families, but the priority is spiritual, a relationship with Jesus. And even he challenges that, doesn't he? If you don't hate mother, father, wife, brother, sisters more than me and love me, then you can't, you're not worthy to be my disciple. So different groups... With varieties of attitudes to the Lord Jesus, some see him as a miracle worker, some as a maniac, some as a black magician. Some were for him, some were against him. Where do you stand on that? What's your view of who Jesus is? That's what Mark wants us to get out of this. <clears throat> Time's going. In chapter 4, which I won't have time, I'll just jump through it very quickly. In chapter 4, you have the Lord Jesus. Mark, Mark only on two occasions brings together teachings of the Lord Jesus. Mark is far more concerned about what Jesus did, his actions and miracles and who he was, and not so much on lengthy um, teaching sessions. But in Mark chapter 4, and again in Mark 13, you have this 
collection of the teaching of the Lord Jesus. And in chapter 4, it's a, four parables that he has. And a parable is a... Well, there's lots of ways I guess they've been described. It's an earthly story with some sort of spiritual meaning to it, a truth to it. It's like a mirror. Something we can identify in the here and now in the ordinary bits of life, but it's an insight into... Uh, how God works, what God is like. But the parable is also a bit of a mirror. We see ourselves in the parables and Jesus used them to teach people. There's also a riddle in the middle of chapter 4 in verses uh, 12 and following. Uh, the disciples didn't get it. They came and asked him what it meant. And he said, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. <coughs> I tell the stories deliberately and then the passage is quoting Isaiah says so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving they may be ever hearing but never understanding otherwise they would turn and be forgiven it's a sense of this means Jesus is using parables in judgment but he's certainly using the parables to make a distinction. It's how you respond to what he is saying. And he, the divine son of God, who came and could teach very powerfully, did not want to force or con people, persuade people into the kingdom under the influence of his own powerful voice. It's rather, it had to be a response, their response to what the spirit of God was doing in them and they had to choose. That's why he spoke in parables. And those who were sincere, who were seeking, they would come and say, what does that mean? But for those who weren't, who were just there for the healing or the miracles or part of the crowd or part of the show, for those people who had ulterior motives, they would go, I have no idea what he is talking about. And they were blinded to it. And Jesus used the parables to bring about this distinction in people. Um, there is a very famous, the first parable is about the parable of the soils. So it goes out and he takes the word of God and he, well, seed, and he spreads it. And the seed becomes the gospel, the word of God. And the important part of this parable is that there are different responses. There's hard-hearted people. There are shallow people. It doesn't take deep root in them. They give up very quickly. There are people who take it, but their lives are so busy and clustered. The thorns choke the influence of the word of God. But then there are people who are good soil and who have a response. They hear it, they receive it, the word, and it brings forth fruit in their life. It brings forth a change, a transformation. Jesus is telling this parable for us, his followers, but also to the crowd, but to us, his followers, in order for us to understand in the process of sharing the gospel, there's going to be various responses from different people. We are not responsible for their responses. Our responsibility is to share the word. And if we are hearers of the word, then our responsibility is to hear it and to receive it and to let it bring forth fruit in our life. Not to resist it, not to give a shallow temporary response to it, not to make it an attachment to, I've got so many things going in my life and I'll add Jesus and Christianity there. No, it's to become centre. It's to become permeating of my life. There's lots of other things we could say from that parable. We need to move on. The seed is good and we are to scatter it. 
and the receptions, as I said, varies. We won't always see the results of what goes on, but we are to go on planting the seed. Jesus tells the story of a farmer, another farmer who goes out and he plants the seed, <clears throat> goes into the soil, and he rises day and night, and he doesn't know how it happens, but over a period of time, the seed sprouts up and it grows, and first the stalk, and then the, the head, and then the full head is filled with new seed. It's a mystery. How does that happen? He doesn't know. But when there is the fruit there, then the, har the farmer comes along for the harvest. The farmer plants the seed, and the farmer harvests the seed. We're alone with Jesus, spending time with him. We go out, and we are telling people the gospel. We are planting the seed. And there are various responses to that. Um, and then we are to look for the one where there is fruit, and they are the ones that we are then to invest in and to train and to equip for the future. Jesus tells another parable about take, liking a, a candle or a lamp. And you don't put that under a bed or under a bowl or something. You light a candle because you want it to give light. So if you've got the truth, if you've got the light, shine. Show it. Don't hide it. That's what he's saying. Um, and there's another one that I can't remember. Oh, the mustard seed. This one, when I was in theological college, used to give me incredible difficulty. And if you want to know about that, you can come and ask me. Otherwise, it shall remain a secret of the kingdom. Verse 30. Again, he said, we shall, what shall we say about the kingdom of God is like? He said, it's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds. The NIV says, on earth. I'd translate that in this land which is the smallest of all seeds in this land. Um, yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden shrubs, garden plants, with such big branches that birds can come and perch in its shade. What's he mean? A little mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds that they knew about in their part of the world, actually grows into being the largest shrub. What's the kingdom of God like? It begins small, but it grows and becomes significant. Twelve disciples Jesus appointed, small mustard seed, which has grown now into a large tree numbering millions and millions and millions of followers of him. That's what the kingdom of God is like. We plant the seed, it grows, we know not how, but it might start small, but in time it will become huge. I'll finish by sharing this one story with you. Back in the 1930s, 40s and 50s um, in Italy, a preacher, an evangelist came preaching the gospel. And as far as he knew, nobody came to faith. Thought it was a failure for the two or three weeks he spent in the country. <clears throat> and uh, then Mussolini uh, came and you know, decimated the country. And the guy went back to visit the area 20 years later. And when he came, he came to a village where there were now 3,000 believers in the Lord Jesus. He made inquiries about where did this come from? And they said it came from one man, a blind man, who was converted by an evangelist who came for two or three weeks back in the 1930s. It was him. And as far as he knew, nobody ever came to faith. But one guy did, a mustard seed. And because of his faithfulness, spending time alone with Jesus, sharing the gospel as he had opportunity, 3,000 people over the next 20 years come to faith. That's the gospel. That's the power of God's word. God's word is powerful. It's life-giving. Just share God's 
word. Time is gone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help each of us here tonight to figure out where we fit, how we respond to Jesus. Are we just fans, part of the crowd? Are we resisting? Are we foes? Or are we followers, committed to spending time with him and sharing with others? Heavenly Father, can you continue to give us ears to hear, to listen and respond appropriately? And may the truth that we receive, may we share it in order that may take even deeper root in us. And may the truth in us, the light of Jesus, shine out. Lord, open our eyes for opportunities this week to share in respectful and gentle ways with others who desperately need to know more about Jesus. We ask and pray in his name. Amen.